If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we're in the uh, book of Ephesians. Uh, the last time we spoke about Ephesians, we read the hinge point. Uh, the first three books of Ephesians talk about um, who we are uh, in Christ, the new creation uh, made new, um, and what's happened that God has done to bring us together as one people um, and to give us a future inheritance, to give us forgiveness of sins. And the second uh, half of the book, the second three chapters into which we are now embarking, are about how the church is going to live given this new reality. And we spoke a couple weeks about, ago about what we might call this ethic. You see, the people in, in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, was a church that was under fire. It was a part of a hostile culture. It was uh, attacked. Um, we even have some stories and acts about Paul's founding of the church and spending several years with them and then actually being kicked out of the city. He had to run away because he was, he was scared he was going to get killed. He actually wanted to stay and face the, the, the lions, as it were, but his, his friends, the elders in the church that he founded, kicked him right out and said, Paul, you can't, you can't be here. You've caused too much problem, too many problems. And so Paul left. Uh, we even hear in, in, in Acts about, uh, he, he comes back one final time, but he doesn't even enter the city. He comes to a city south of, this, or, uh, south of, of, of Ephesus to meet with the elders and pray with them because he knows he's going to Rome to die and he's never going to see them again. He understands uh, that Ephesus is a, it, it's a hostile environment. And so we talked about the kind of ethic he's going to develop for the church. It's going to be what we call a trench ethic. It's going to be the ethic of people who are in the middle of a battle, we're in the middle of the war. It's not the same kind of ethics that you have when everything's happy and peaceful and joyful. It's the ethic for living in a hostile culture, a culture that is doing everything it can to resist the coming of the next age. We have hope, and the Ephesians had hope, that this new age was coming. And so they fought. And now this week we begin to learn how. In the text today, Paul is going to explain our number one priority. The number one thing that every church in the midst of a hostile culture, and I submit that here in South Orange County, we are in the midst of a hostile culture. What every church has to hold fast, the number one priority, the one thing you can't let go, this is it. If you do this, you've got a fighting chance, and if you don't, you're done. I'm looking for a new phone. This happens uh, every couple of years. You know, you, you, uh, as a member of Verizon Wireless, they, they tempt me. They say, oh, you've got a free upgrade. Uh, so I went on the internet because I, I, I'm curious to see what's out there. Um, and hey, have you seen the, the Sony Ericsson K750? I mean, look at that thing. Woo, real nice, right? It's a classy phone. A um, little bit small on the screen, though. You know, and, and I, I don't know about all those, those buttons, uh, so I looked uh, for, uh, for a few others. Um, have you seen the no Nokia E51? This is a, oh, wow, look at that thing. Woo, beautiful. Yeah, but um, there's this new thing the kids are doing, texting. Going to be challenging, though, because I'd have to hit um, the three button two times to get the letter E, and then the seven button three times to get R, the four button three times to get I, and the six button two times to get N. That's how I'm going to find Aaron on my phone. Very, very inconvenient. And on that, it's not even that attractive. I mean, look at those, those, the, the text. It just doesn't look that great. Uh, the Nokia 95, a little more aimed at the youth. Um, see, there's a racing car game that you can do. It's a little, a little bit pixelated. Uh, but look at all the, there's got some cool icons. And it like slides out. So you don't always have to be on that keyboard if you don't want to. Um, I, I would like something a little bit um, better for the texting though. So I, I think I'm settled almost on the Sidekick 3. 
Look at that thing. I mean, you wonder, look, wow, so fun. And uh, apparently politicians like the BlackBerry, which is similar, has a full keyboard. You can really get uh, your text in and, and some great games to go along uh, from our friends at T-Mobile. Uh, but then, here's the thing. On Ju- Obviously, these are old. You know when these phones came out? These are all like 2006, about 10 years ago, a decade ago, 2006, 2007. On uh, June 29th of two, <laughs> Glenn, that's when your phone was made. I know, great. Uh, on June 29th of 2007, um, a, a game changer came out, and it looked like this. And you're like, where's the keyboard? And Steve Jobs is like, no, 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 you don't get it. You can touch the screen. You're like, what is this, Star Trek? Sign me up. What, are you kidding me? What's cool about this picture? So that's uh, 2007, June 29th, first generation iPhone. On the right is uh, the latest iteration of the iPhone. It's like a 6 SE something, whatever. Notice that they're almost identical in the way that they look. I mean, phenomenal, right? It's been almost 10 years, and phone technology, I mean, it, the technology has obviously changed a lot, but the look almost hasn't. And that's because the iPhone is absolutely elegant. It's incredible in every way. It has every option. It's got, I mean, it's got the camera. You can touch the screen. It does phone. It does text. It does it all. There's a, 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 an app environment that had never happened before where third-party people can develop their own programs and you can play it on your phone. I mean, unbelievable. In 2007, when that iPhone came out, I mean, Apple was a thousand years, literally three years ahead of the competition. Another phone that, that rivaled the iPhone did not come out for about three years, which is an incredible domination of the market. How? How is that possible? How did Apple get that thing when everybody else had the, the Sidekick 3? How did they do it? Well, in 2008, um, there was an expo, and uh, a tech journalist was talking to one of Apple's competitors. And uh, the, the, the competitor was like, you know, anonymous, you can't say my name, you can't say who I work for. But it was one of the direct competitors. I personally think that his company started with an N and rhymed with uh, Lokia, but I could be wrong. Doesn't, I don't know. I don't know. But whoever it was, he was asked by this tech journalist, and, and the tech journalist was like, look, man, I really respect what you've done, but come on. How did Apple do it? And this is what our friend from, um, from Lokia said. He said, I've got, a, I've got to design 30 phones. They only have one. I've got to spread my, I'm thinking about every single possible iteration, this demographic, that demographic, this option, that option. I'm thinking about 30 different, I literally am designing 30 phones right now. Apple? They have one. They spent $150 million on one phone. It took them two years, but they did all of that on one phone. Apple had to, Apple had to absolutely kill just one phone, and they did it. Apple's got a ton of business. They've got you know, computers and this, that, and TVs and whatnot. For two years, all the money, all the resources, everything was on this flagship item. They had one thing. The church, Paul says, has one priority. Number one, there's a lot of things the church does. A lot of things. But when you're in the midst of a hostile culture, like the people at Ephesus, like the people at Coast Bible Church, priority number one, what is it? Let's stand together and read this text. 
Ephesians 4, 1-6, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as all of you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all. You may be seated. You may have missed it. In, our, in the translation that we have, um, that one thing, that number one priority, it's, it's a little bit buried uh, because of the way the New King James translators handle the Greek. So we're going to go backwards. We're going to start at the end, and we're going to move back to, the, to that moment where Paul brings out the number one priority of the church in a hostile culture. And so as we do, uh, we're going to start with verses 4 through 6. And I'm just going to bring out, just actually just a few things in verses uh, 4 through 6 to give you a sense of what's going on. And then when we have that, when we understand that, I think we're really going to get that one priority, the number one thing. There is one body. One body, Paul says. This is his theology. He's, he's, he's talking about the unity of the church. You know, um, it's interesting. We, we in, in the, the 21st century, uh, it's hard for us to think of the church, the big C church out there as one body. You know, we've spent uh, the last really about a thousand years um, breaking the church up um, and, and over legitimate things. I don't want to suggest that that's not the case. But one thing I've noticed is that, uh, um, and maybe this is true for you, but the people that um, I disagree with most, most vehemently are actually the people I tend to be closest to. We have so much in common, but then uh, there's that one thing. It's like, you're wrong. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the two, the, the, they're friends under normal circumstances. But when it comes to Bernie or Hillary, they just can't get along. It's the people you're closest to that you butt heads with the most. Until you're in a hostile environment. Until the convention's over, the, the candidate has been selected, and everyone's got to say, hey, better this person than that person, right? It's in, ho- in a hostile environment, you kind of put away uh, some of the squabbles, and you really do become one body. Paul says, look, Ephesians, I know you've got your, your problems and your strife and your, and your warfare, but, but right now, I need you to put some of that aside, because we've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, we, we've seen this um, happen in our own culture, uh, in, in the church, uh, in the, uh, the 80s, uh, especially um, during the time of, the, of Operation Rescue, there's, uh, when, when uh, Christians all over the country were, were battling to um, try and uh, make political change to, to pre- prevent abortion. A lot of the Christians found themselves, um, you know, evangelicals and, and Roman Catholics, holding hands for the first time in a long time. Um, because they found that in the midst of a hostile culture, they, they looked at the stuff they had that was different, and they're like, yeah, okay, there's some issues there. But man, we can band together for this thing. Friends, I suggest that as the hostile culture that we're in becomes more and more hostile to us, we're going to find that um, people that we normally would be like, oh, I don't know about everything you think, we're going to be like, but we do have a lot more in common than we thought. And so when we, when we, when we look for those essential tenets of our faith, um, we need to hold on to those, and we can't compromise those in any way. Um, but we do need to be willing to, to, to band together, because it's going to get harder. 
Um, and even if we have a few points that we're not uh, sure about, we have got to stand tall and stand strong. Because otherwise, the culture is going to absorb us piecemeal. You know, Benjamin Franklin, we shall hang together, we shall all hang separately. One spirit. One spirit distributes many different gifts. Uh, and, and sometimes these gifts get really... Um, they get really uh, challenging. Some people look at the gifts uh, that are there and they're like, oh, I don't know about that one. Or I don't know if I like that one. Or what really happens, the one that's really bad, is, is when people start saying, this one's better than that one, right? Like, oh, this person has the gift of such and such. And that makes this person, whoop, whoop, whoop. this person only has that gift. So they're kind of, I'll tell you what, when you enter into a friendly environment, that kind of jockeying for position is possible. But as soon as the guns are out, it's time to band together because we're going to need all of our gifts if we're going to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. It's so, it's very interesting how um, over the last uh, 20 years, um, what was a major divide between um, what you might call them, uh, like say maybe conservative evangelicals and Pentecostals, very, very much at odds even just 30 years ago, even just 20 years ago. Now, um, we have a lot more in common than, than we have uh, differently, don't we? Um, and, and as, and as the, the culture presses in on us more and more, I, I find it easier and easier to overlook things that, that just a little while ago might have been really made me upset and concerned. And I'm willing to say that one spirit is tying us together. One spirit is distributing a lot of different things for us to use in order to, to be defended, in order to, to hang together. I'm willing to be friends even if I don't always agree with every single jot and tittle because we agree on things like the resurrection and forgiveness of sins. We agree on scripture. We agree on grace. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. What is that hope? Heaven? Think about this. Heaven is eternity. It doesn't end. The person next to you that you don't like that much, you're going to be with them for a very, very long time. You guys have the same hope, okay? You're going to be in the same mansion, probably. You better learn to get along now. And in the hostile culture, that's even more important. You are, you are headed to the same place. You have the same vision of resurrection and glorification. Now is the time to, to hold hands and get along. Because when things get hard, this hope is going to be more and more important. One body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. One king. One commander. Every single one of us is going to be called to a similar life pattern because we share the same leader. We follow the same crucified Lord. I remember it was so fascinating when, uh, when I went to college for the first time. I was on my hall. And, you know, it was my favorite thing about college was the first day I, I, my parents left me. For like a, a good solid 45 minutes, I was really bummed. I was like, oh, my parents are gone, and they're never going to be my parents again, and it's never going to be the same, and I'm embarking on this new scary adventure. And so I did what I always do, and I turned on a computer, and I started playing a computer game. And um, I, I noticed that it was getting later, and I kept playing my game. 
And it was getting even later. And I looked out outside and on the hall, people were running around screaming, yelling, lights were on. And I was looking at my, I'm like, isn't it bedtime? What's going on here? It's 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 a.m. And we're all just hanging out. You know something? This college isn't so bad. Ah. And so I went out in the hall and, and I was, you know, I was like, I kind of want to figure out what's happening here. And I saw this one dude who was being very kind, very generous to people. And I was like, Christian. I was right. My buddy Chad had been friends for years. I just met him because I realized he was maybe not doing some of the things that other people on the hall were doing. And I was like, you're, you're one of us, I can tell. Because we followed the same Lord, even though we came from radically different circumstances. Um, we, we followed the same Lord. We had the same kind of ethic, the, the, the same basic way of approaching the world, the same commands. And so I was, it was easy to pick him out of the crowd. And Mark too. I mean, two guys on my hall, I could figure it out in, almost instantly. Because we look different. And the more hostile the culture is, and let me tell you, a freshman dorm at college is very hostile <laughs> to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more hostile the culture, the more you are going to stick out. And the more we do have to double down on our one Lord. One faith. Friends, crucifixion, resurrection, the God of Israel, the forgiveness of sins through faith, by grace. All Christians everywhere throughout time have held this thing. Interesting. I remember um, when uh, last week Arch Rutherford, our longtime pastor, was here. I remember being in a theology study with him when I was in high school. And um, I remember we were talking about, you know, some obscure uh, doctrinal issue. Uh, and most of the people had fallen asleep. Um, and, and Arch was looking at me. I was still awake because and, and, I was young. I had a lot of energy. And so um, he was like, he was asking me, he was like, he was like Why, what do you think is the value of doing this? I said, well, I don't really know. I mean, the truth, I guess, seems very important. He's like, that is very important, but here's the thing. The only reason that we can do this right now, that we can get deep into theology, is because we live in a time of relative peace. Theology, doctrine, that is something that only happens when we're not at war, when we're not being persecuted, we're not being trashed and beat up and destroyed. We actually have a luxury to be able to think on these things and meditate on these things and learn these things from the scriptures because we're not worried about our lives every day. Friends, as peacetime fades from our culture for the church, it is going to be an ever-increasing challenge for us to hold on to this truth of our faith. And we absolutely must as a church, be 100% committed to deeply learning from the scriptures. If we lose that, we will lose everything. And it's going to be harder and harder the farther things go. One baptism, baptism of the Spirit. This is not water baptism, I don't think, um, because uh, I believe you can be a Christian without having been baptized. Um, our church teaches believer baptism. It is a command, water baptism. But every person who believes is immediately baptized in the Spirit. Every person shares in the Spirit of God. And every single one of us has it. Come on on Saturday, though, because water baptism is a really important thing. It is important to profess your faith in, uh, faith in public, and it's a, a command of our Lord. So please, uh, come out. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You'll notice I have brackets there. That's because in the King James, or New King James, um, there's a word there, us. Um, that's a, a later addition to the text. We have some really great, um, we have some really great uh, manuscripts. Uh, even um, some of the manuscripts that the, uh, the uh, translators in New King James used uh, omitted this us. 
And I've followed that because I understand what was going on. Um, if you read this text, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, if you don't have that us there, it sounds like um, we might be talking about um, creation and not just people. Okay? It sounds like it might be talking about creation and not just people. Such that God is the Father of all of creation. He's the God, uh, he is the God above all creation. He is the God who's through all creation, and he is the God that's in all creation. The translators of the New King James, they recognize the danger of having that us, or not having the us, after that in, in us all. The danger is that we might start to think uh, that the God of Christianity is like the God of the pagans, uh, pantheistic, that the creation itself is God. If you think, um, if you think about Star Wars, right? Star Wars, uh, Star Wars has this, you know, the, the force or whatever. The way that they describe the force is you get the sense that the force actually just is all life, right? And if you think of the force as God, the force is everything. The force, um, the more you're in touch with it, the more you're one with the universe, something mystical, something like that. That was a very prevalent thought in, 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 uh, in the ancient world. And it's one that's very prevalent now. It's becoming more prevalent. And so there's this concern that if we don't have that us, that we might start to think that um, God, is a part, God is a part of the created order. God is in, in some very you know, intense way, part of the created order. I think it's important to have the text, I believe, as it originally was, because I think that in this statement, Christianity is radically distancing itself from the two great... Um, the two great falsehoods about who God is. And I'm just taking this aside because it's so very important for us to know, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, but one God and Father of all, who is above all, right? One of the great, um, one of the great philosophies of what God is like is, the, is Platonic dualism, or its later um, iteration in the Enlightenment, Enlightenment deism. And this is the belief that God is, is radically separated, radically uninvolved with the universe. God's above it, and just above it. Uh, in the Enlightenment, they talked about uh, God being like a watchmaker. He winds up the watch, and then he runs away, right? And so God doesn't have any real um, interaction with the creation. Uh, in, in, in Plato, God was sort of, you know, if there was a God, he would be a form, an immaterial form, that didn't have any connection um, to the world. And so this bridging this gap was like a radical thing that God had to do. And so there's that problem, there's that way of thinking about God, and then there's this other way of thinking about God where God is just in the creation. God is the creation. Pantheism. Well, the Christians have a, a, a sort of uh, best of both worlds way of going about things where they say, no, God is father of all. He is above it, but he creates through the Son, and so he's in it, uh, or he's, it, 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 he's, he's through, working through it. And because of the presence of the Spirit, he's also in everything that's happening. He's not part of the creation. He's not radically divorced from the creation. He, um, he is above, through, and in. Um, and this is the first thing on your note sheet. I just wanted to bring it out. Paul is neither a pagan pantheist nor a Platonic Enlightenment deist. God is above, through, and in the created order, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Uh, this matters because um, we as Christians have to be able to explain how it is that God works. And when we say that God works in mysterious ways we're actually saying something very profound. We're saying that God um, is above, but by his spirit, he's able to interact with the world regularly in, in its rhythms so that even in something like the weather, God can be active. And that's not weird for God. 
And yet at the same time, God's able to be above and to look down and have sovereign commanding control over all things. Yet he's not the one who has to like bridge some major gap to get to us. He's already, in a sense, here. Um, And this is traditional Jewish monotheism, that God is over and through and in. When we were reading that, did you, did you notice um, the structure of verses 4 to 6? How weird it is? Did you notice this? Ones and threes? Did you see the ones and threes? We all heard the ones. One body, one Lord, one spirit, one, ba- one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. Did you see the threes, though? Let's, let's look at them really quick here. Let's look. Okay, so one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One, one, one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One, one, one. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Above, through, in. One, one, one. Isn't that weird? Um, one thing that they, they think is that maybe this was a, like a, a baptismal formula that Christians memorized. It is very memorable uh, in the Greek. Um, but did you notice there, notice, notice there, Spirit, Lord, Father. Every member, every person of the Trinity is named in this, um, in this uh, text right here. So there's Spirit, who's spirit, there's Jesus, the Lord, and then there's Father. All three are named. And yet, again and again, you hear this one, one, one. And let's look again um, at the text. You can see here uh, that not only that, um, each, each uh, member of the Trinity or each person of the Trinity is involved in like a, a triad of something that they're kind of in charge of, I guess, if you might, you might think about, that, about it that way. One, one body created by the one spirit, right? And, and one hope that the spirit, you know, plants in us. Um, of our calling, and then one commander, one Lord, one faith in him, one baptism that, that he in, inaugurated, right? And then one God who, who according to tr- uh, the traditional Jewish view, is above and through and in. So there's these triads where they, it's the three members of the Trinity, and then the, then the three things that, that maybe they're, um, that they're describing, each work that they're describing. An interesting way of going about things. You could think of it as, as kind of unity and differentiation, oneness and threeness throughout this text. Very weird. Why so important? Why so important to emphasize this oneness and this threeness, these um, different persons, and yet the oneness of the faith, this, this variety and unity? Why is that so prominent in this text? This, I think, is the pointer that tells us what it is that Paul is saying is the number one priority. This theology, this oneness and threeness, unity and differentiation, is absolutely critical. It points out the connection, this is in your note sheets, the theology of ones and threes shows the connection between the church and the God who called her. This, this oneness and threeness is somehow pointing us back to the p- number one thing that, that the church is called to do. It's showing a connection between something interesting about the church and something interesting about the Godhead. And it is this oneness and threeness, this unity and differentiation. This is somehow absolutely critical. I want us to listen to the first three verses again and try and pick out, try and pick out this, this unity and differentiation in the text. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring there, um, really, in Greek, something like spare no effort. 
Point number one. All of your effort, all of your strength, right here. Keep, really guard, protect, defend. Pour all of your energy into guarding or defending something else. Notice, guard and defend, not create. Right? Put all of your effort into creating the unity of the Spirit. No, no, no. Don't worry, the Spirit's going to do that for you. Interesting fact, whether you like it or not, your brothers and sisters, everyone here. Why? Because the Spirit made you that way, through your faith. You have been created into this body. You have been made one, brothers and sisters. And it's your number one job, the number one priority, to guard it, defend it, save it, because it's fragile, because it can get broken up so easily, especially when the, when the guns are out from the culture. It is going to be so difficult to hold fast this, this tight oneness. Why? Because all you people are so different. The unity of the Spirit. The next uh, slide. The unity of the Spirit. Augustine, St. Augustine said that the, uh, the Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son, making them one. Likewise, the Spirit is the one who unites us, this body of people from every economic class, every nation, every uh, tribe and tongue, all these people thrown together with their different manners, their, 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 their different ideas of what is right and polite and good. This is what the Spirit does. He takes all these people and he forges them like a blade made out of many different metals, put in together, made one. We talked a few weeks ago about the melting pot. Four cheeses bleed into one. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the work has to be protected. And it's our job, our number one priority. The one thing we got to do before we do anything else is save it. The bond of peace, the bond, the connections that peace brings. But peace doesn't mean not war. Peace means shalom to Paul and to the early church. It means flourishing, a robust community. If if you've ever been a part of a community that is really tight, where the people really love each other, you, you can't get away. The bonds that are forged are unbreakable. People will do incredible things for each other when they think of them as family. When they're living that great awesome life before God involved in one another's lives when they're living that they flourish in radical and powerful ways and those ways don't break easily they create bonds connections and when you have them don't lose them number one priority is guard those things defend them if I were to do a contemporary English kind of gloss of that that third verse It would look like this. Your number one priority, number one priority is to protect the unity God created in you by his spirit. The connections made by a flourishing, robust, peaceful community. That's the last thing in your note sheet. The church's number one priority is to protect the unity God created by his spirit. The connections made by a flourishing, robust, peaceful community community. And if that's your number one priority, then doesn't it make sense that you would live with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, literally putting up. (laughs) Arch talked about it last week. Just letting it go. 
because you love them. Isn't that the only way that this blade, this forged blade can stay together, that this melting pot can, can stay together, this, this fragile thing can be protected is if we are all ridiculously committed to this trench ethic. This is the war. This is us in the trenches. This is the culture coming at us. And only this way, only this way will you be able to fulfill your number one priority. Man, how did they do so well? And let's be honest, you guys didn't. He says, man, I got 30 phones I'm worried about. They only have one. We only have one to start with. There's a lot of things the church has to do. A lot of things. But if we don't do this, we're going to break apart. We're going to get overcome. We're going to get beat. This, spare no effort to defend this unity in the spirit. Friends, um, we're going to be making a big push in the next uh, month or two for, for small groups. Um, there's only one reason I'm doing this. It's because Paul says if you don't have this unity in the spirit, you're going to fall apart. And I believe that we are called to double down, reinvest in each other, make commitments. Well, I'll tell you more in, in, in a few weeks, but, but the basic idea is I, I, don't, I don't care what it is that, that cranks your engine um, about the faith. Um, but whatever it is, whatever your passion is, consider, consider the idea that you might be willing to open up your home for 10 weeks, just do, just do 10 weeks, something like that, and have people come and spend time forging these connections, defending them, protecting them, protecting this unity of the Spirit as we learn and grow together. It could be, uh, I don't know, anything, apologetics that you're concerned about, or maybe you want to go through the book of John. I think uh, Jack's group is doing that. Um, maybe, maybe you just want to meet um, with me at 5 a.m. And, and surf. I don't care what it is. And we can pray and, and read a psalm. I don't care what it is, but th- search, think deeply. What is it that, that, that cranks your engine? And, and would you be willing to find other people other people who would do that with you? And would you, as somebody say, I, I would look, I'd love to look at a list. I'd love to join into something like that. Would you be willing to take the time, recommit, change up your schedule to make this happen, to be a part of these people's lives? I want you to start thinking about it now, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit. But, but the reason I want you to talk about it now is because Paul says this is point number one. You know, it's so easy, guys. Our lives get so filled up with, with, you know, 30 different phones. We should only have one to start. When we got that, we'll be ready to live the way we were called to live in an increasingly hostile culture. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll stir up um, in our hearts a jealousy, a passion, a zeal to defend that which you have created in your spirit, the oneness of your church. I pray that this local body, this this small but mighty church, will be jealous to protect the bonds of peace, jealous to protect our investment in each other, jealous to maintain that oneness, that unity, that the world will look and be shocked that these people from every walk of life love deeply 
who act with lowliness and, and gentleness and, and, and they suffer long and they put up with each other. Why? Because you have asked it and because we have hope in your calling. Stir up your people and let us defend the unity of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.